Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Robert Lustig is a pediatric endocrinologist and the internationally acclaimed author of the popular works Fat Chance, Sugar Has 56 Names, The Fat Chance Cookbook, and The Hacking of the American Mind. And he's here today to discuss his latest must-read titled Metabolical. The Lore and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Rob, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's my pleasure. So great to have you here. The title of your book is Metabolical. I loved it. It's an important book. We need a book like this, given what's going on in the world right now. Um, So excited to, to dive in with you today. And there's so many interesting tidbits in here. And I'm going to start with the nutrition facts label. And you say the label tells us what's in the food, but what we really need to know is what's been done to the food and no label tells us that. So let's start there. Oh, that's exactly right. So the nutrition facts label was devised back in 1990 with an update just recently to tell us what's in the food and what's important to know what's in the food. Well, I'll be honest with you. You're assuming that there's something in the food that's not if you have to have that nutrition facts label. My contention and the whole point of the book is that all food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that's not. And what we do to the food is add stuff, and it's the stuff we add, whether it's labeled or not, that matters, and stuff that's been taken out. And that's not listed anywhere on the food. So really what we should be talking about is what's been put in versus what's been taken out. And if we knew that, then first of all, 75% of what's in the store, no one would buy if you actually knew that. And number two, you would have some guesstimate then about the degree of processing and you could make decisions on what you would consume based on that rather than what some USDA scientist decided was good for you, which to be honest with you, basically discounts all real food. And the reason is because real food doesn't have a label. There is no label on a radish. There is no label on a on an apple, and there doesn't need to be. Uh, the only things that have labels are things that have been processed. So, it, it, is there an example of a healthy food that should be healthy and really is terrible that does have a label? Like, a, is there an egregious example that sticks out? Well, let's give us let's give an easy one. Let's do fruit juice. So an orange is fine. An orange juice is not fine. Now, people say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is what got thrown in the garbage because that's the real nutrient. It was the fiber. Now, people say, how can fiber be a nutrient? You don't even absorb fiber. That's exactly the point. Yes, you don't absorb it, which is why the FDA does not consider it a nutrient is because you don't absorb it because that fiber is not food for you. It's food for your bacteria. It's food for your intestinal microbiome. And we have now learned that if you don't feed your intestinal microbiome, your intestinal microbiome feeds on you. 
And if it decides that it's not getting what it needs, it's going to actually chew the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, thus exposing those cells to bacteria, to cytokines, uh, promoting leaky gut, and ultimately leading to inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, possibly leaky gut, insulin resistance, chronic metabolic disease, and death. All the things you don't want. Because you drank the orange juice instead of eating the orange. So where I'm going to go next, you know, it sounds like we should avoid processed food and eat real food. And then I will, I go to my, I go to my playbook and my playbook goes to the, the famous Michael Pollan quote, we all love to reference, eat food, yep. not too much, mostly plants, which you reference in the book and you say, Michael's a friend, but hold on. I think you got it wrong. You like to say, protect yep. the liver, feed the gut. So can you elaborate on protect the liver, feed the gut? Sure. So the first of thing is he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants in his famous New York Times magazine article. And, you know, that sounds good and sounds right, but actually it's not right. So first of all, eat food. What's food? So my question is, are Oreos food? That's number one question. Number two, not too much. Well, how do you do that? when your leptin is being interfered with and so your brain can't see the signal that tells you to stop eating. How are you supposed to eat not too much? And then finally, mostly plants, going back to the Oreo, Coke and Doritos and Oreos are all vegan. They're mostly plants. In fact, they're all plants. And I don't think you can eat uh, too much worse than that. So those three clauses in Michael's motto, I think are all problematic. So after you have to look at the science, you have to understand what's going on. What I've tried to do in this book is distill the real message into two clauses, six words instead of seven, protect the liver, feed the gut. So protect the liver. Well, protect the liver from what? Well, a bunch of things, mostly sugar, because it turns out that your liver has an innate capacity to metabolize sugar and it's got an upper threshold, it's got a ceiling. Same as alcohol. So if you consume a beer, chances are you will not have exceeded your alcohol threshold. If you consume two beers, you might, depends on whether you're a woman or a man. If you consume three, there's a good chance you will have exceeded your alcohol threshold and you'll start to feel it. If you consume four, you've got a big problem. And if you consume five, you're a friggin' alcoholic. Right? So it's a dose issue. So you have to protect the liver. And if you keep drinking that alcohol, you're going to get cirrhosis. So there is an innate capacity of your liver to metabolize alcohol, but it is easily exceedable. Same for sugar. Turns out we can metabolize on the order of about 25 to 37 and a half grams of added sugar per day, max. And that's even pushing it. I'm being a little, shall we say, liberal with that number. It's probably closer to 25. And that's actually very similar to what we can do with alcohol. And the reason I make this analogy between sugar and alcohol is because the liver mitochondria in particular basically don't care. They metabolize sugar and alcohol exactly the same. And it shouldn't be surprising that they do because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of sugar. It's called wine. 
We do it in Napa and Sonoma every day. The big difference between the two is that for alcohol, the yeast does the first step of metabolism called glycolysis. For sugar, we do our own first step. But after that, they're virtually identical. And so they cause the same diseases. So we should not be surprised that children today get the diseases of alcohol without alcohol. Type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease are diseases never seen before in children until 1980. And now 25% of children have fatty liver disease and one out of every three new cases of diabetes are type 2. So clearly something is going wrong with the liver. Now, it's not just sugar. You got to protect it from heavy metals. You got to protect it from glyphosate. You got to protect it from a host of other things, branch chain amino acids, which can overwhelm the liver's capacity to metabolize it and turn into liver fat as well. So protect the liver. The second is feed the gut. And so what do you have to feed the gut? Well, fiber is the primary food for the intestinal bacteria. And the problem is we've taken fiber out of the food very specifically for shelf life. So as an example, all right, you have a a whole grain, okay? The whole grain has a husk on it on the outside. The starch is on the inside. You swallow the whole grain. The intestine, the uh, enzymes in the intestine have to shear off all of that um, fiber before you can actually get to the starch, which means that the uh, absorption of that starch will be very delayed. And that's a good thing because that means that your glucose level doesn't go up so fast, which means your insulin level stays low. This is the concept of glycemic load. But in addition, that fiber is actually uh, allowing for the uh, gut to be fed. And so those bacteria in your gut will be happy. And we always now talk about the microbiome being dysfunctional or the bad bacteria and the good bacteria. Well, the easiest way to grow your good bacteria is to give them what they need, which is fiber. So protect the liver, feed the gut. So you're touching on diabetes. I have to go to obesity next because it is a huge epidemic. And you say obesity is a red herring. So can you elaborate So here's what you need to know. Uh, 30% of Americans are obese. BMI over 30. Agreed. Obesity is a problem. I don't disagree that it's a problem. But really what it is, is some marker for the problem. And here's how we know that. Yes, 30% of Americans are obese. 80% of the 30% are metabolically ill. So 80% of 30%. That's a lot of people. 57 million people are metabolically ill and they're obese. But that means that 20% of that 30% are not. They are metabolically healthy. We have a name for them, MHO, metabolically healthy obese. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. They even have normal length telomeres the ends of the chromosomes that determine how fast your cells die and therefore how fast you die. These people are not the problem, the 20% or 30%. Conversely, 40% of the normal weight population, the BMI under 30, have the exact same diseases as the obese. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, 
fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease too. Okay, but they get it at normal weight. Now, when you do the math, 40% of 70% is actually greater than 80% of 30%. There are 67 million thin sick people compared to 57 million fat sick people. There are more thin sick people than fat sick people, but the thin sick people are calling the fat sick people the problem. Excuse me. <laughs> and when you do the math, that's more than half the U.S. population, which is what makes this a public health crisis. And if normal weight people get it too, how can it be about behavior? This looks more like exposure. This looks like cholera or tuberculosis or influenza or even COVID-19 for that matter, where you can have somebody in the same house as somebody else and somebody has the, the virus and somebody else doesn't. All right. So the bottom line is it's not the obesity. It's not the fat you can see. It's not the fat that you measure when you stand on the scale. It's the fat in the organs. It's the fat in the liver. It's the fat in the muscles. And that you can't measure by standing on a scale. So it's the fat you can't see that makes all the difference. So if I'm listening right now, I'm thinking, oh, great. So I'm pretty healthy. I, I have a healthy sure BMI. <laughs> I, well, I am because I do the ridiculous amount of blood testing where I get my 28 vials of blood and all that good stuff with our friend, Dr. Frank Levin. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm 46. I'm, I'm pretty good. But with, with that said, I'm sure a lot of people are saying, oh, wow, like how do I know if, if I am doing well? So what are the labs? What are the tests that people should pay attention to when they go to their practitioner, wherever they live in the world and demand and say, Hey, I want X, Y, and Z. Right. So the question you're asking is how do you know what your metabolic status is? That's what you're asking. And I, that's a very good question. There are a couple of things that you can know just from looking. So vital signs are valuable. Okay, blood pressure is valuable. Your waist circumference is the most valuable. Your belt size. If you're a male and you have a belt size of 40 or greater, chances are you've got visceral and probably liver fat and you've got a problem. For females, it's 35 inches. So that's something that costs nothing. And you can find that out very easily. This has nothing to do with standing on the scale. This has to do with your belt size. Now, in terms of lab tests, there are a lot of different lab tests out there. And the question is, which ones do you want to know? The very first thing you have to know is do not take the word normal for an answer. Your doctor will look at the lab slip at your chem panel and say, oh, all your labs are normal. Screw that. Okay. Get the friggin' numbers, write them down. Okay. Because just because they say normal, that just means that the number is in with, within the reference range. Well, that reference range is garbage. It's useless. It is BS. Okay. And I've got worse words to say about it. All right. Do you know why that H and the L, the high and the low are there in the third column on the uh, thing? Cause that's 10 bucks, right? That's you, they get to charge for that. That's an interpretation, right? It's junk. Okay. They have to have a, a reference range in order to be able to put the H or the L. That's not what you want to know. 
Let me give you an example of a test that is very useful, very valuable. And if your doctor doesn't understand what he's looking, he or she is looking at, it's, you're going to waste it. It's called an ALT, alanine aminotransferase. This is a test of liver fat. Now it is sensitive, but not specific. So when it's high, it means something. When it's low, it doesn't. All right. But it is a very valuable test and it's easy to get. And it comes on a standard chem panel. Now, if you look at an ALT, if you look at the normal range, the reference range, it will tell you that a normal ALT is up to 40, 40 units per liter. This is garbage, total complete trash. When I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit on ALT was 25. Today it's 40, same test. How come it was 25 then and it's 40 now? Answer, the entire curve has shifted to the right because now 45% of the population has fatty liver disease and they don't know it. So they're quote healthy unquote, because they don't know that they've got fatty liver. So they go in, they get their blood drawn and doctor says, how are you? I'm normal. And then they do the Gaussian distribution on that. And sure enough, two standard deviations above the mean, which is where you draw the line that's at 40. Yeah, now it is, but it used to be at 25. And the reason is because now everyone's got fatty liver disease. So really 25 is the upper limit of normal. And if your doctor doesn't know that, then you're going to miss it. You're not going to know that you've got a problem. That's one example. Second example, fasting insulin. I think fasting insulin is the single best test of your metabolic status and your doctor has to order it. It's not part of a standard chem panel. Now, the problem is the American Diabetes Association says, do not draw fasting insulins. Do not. It says right on their website, fasting insulin is useless. Garbage. Total, complete trash also. Now, why do they say that? They say it for two reasons, both of which are wrong. The first reason they say it is because fasting insulin the assay is not standardized across laboratories. That is true. That is true. So what? Here's the problem. There is a pro-hormone okay, of insulin called pro-insulin. It is a bigger molecule. The C-peptide is a fragment that has to be cleaved out of that pro-insulin molecule to actually make insulin. When your pancreas is working super hard and is ultra-stressed, as it is when you're, when you're metabolically ill, your pancreas wants to put out whatever it can as fast as it can to try to deal with the high blood glucose. And so it will release pro-insulin instead of cleaving out the C-peptide and releasing insulin. And some of the antibodies in the, some of the assays, especially the cheap assays around the country, will measure pro-insulin as insulin and won't distinguish between the two. So that is true. And that's why the American Diabetes Association says, don't draw it. If it's high, that's a warning sign that there's a problem, whether you're measuring insulin or pro-insulin. So that really doesn't fly, that they're, they're concerned. The second reason they say don't draw it is fasting insulin levels do not correlate with obesity. That is also true. So what? 
because it's not about obesity. As I've already told you, obesity is a red herring. It's about metabolic health. It's about the fat you can't see. And fasting insulin correlates with that, that atopic fat, the, the fat in the organs, very well. So it's an extremely valuable piece of information. And you're told not to get it. So that's why I wrote this book, is to give people the information that their doctors aren't learning. So where do you want the fasting insulin, ideally? What level? So anything over 15 microunits per mil is going to be an issue. So you really want it to be below 10. I mean, as low as possible. I mean, two is really good. I mean, and the lower it is, the longer you're going to live for sure. But, you know, if you're at 15 or greater, there's, you've got an issue. So ALT, fasting insulin, anything else come to mind? Sure. Uh, several others. I mean, lipid profile, people know about that, but everyone looks at the lipid profile and the thing they're really interested in is the LDL. Turns out the LDL is not nearly as important as the serum triglyceride. Yeah. The serum triglyceride is really telling you what your liver's doing. The LDL is telling you about other parts of your body, but you really want to know what your liver is doing because triglyceride comes from the liver. And so that's telling you what your liver is doing with the sugar it's being presented with. And a fourth one that's really important is uric acid. And uric acid is a byproduct of purine metabolism in the liver. It goes up with high protein diets, but it also goes up with high sugar diets. And so we use uric acid as a proxy for sugar consumption. And uric acid is particularly egregious because it interferes with mitochondrial function in the cell. And outside the cell, it interferes with the enzyme in your blood vessels called endothelial nitric oxide synthase, or ENOS, which is your endogenous blood pressure lower nitric oxide is. So if you're not making nitric oxide, your blood pressure goes up. So people think salt is the reason for high blood pressure. Wrong sugar is because of this effect. So uric acid is important too. So just for clarity, for triglycerides and uric acid, what levels do you like to see? So for triglyceride, under 100 would be good. For uric acid, below 5.5 for an adult, below 5.0 for a kid. Got it. It's above that, you know, something to look at. Got it. So in terms of food, how should we be eating? You say in the book, quote, fiber and foods, perhaps the most important nutrient for health, end quote. So you're a big fan of fiber. So, so what's, how should we be eating? Before we start recording, we talked about how polarized our world is in terms of nutrition philosophy. But if you had to generalize, how should we be eating? Well, the, uh, two words, real food. The whole book is basically an ode to real food, explaining how processed food is not food. Processed food is something else. And basically what I said is you determine whether a food is healthy, whether it satisfies those two criteria. Does it protect the liver? Does it feed the gut? If it does both, a food is healthy. If it does neither, it's poison. If it does one or the other but not both, then it's somewhere in the middle like fruit juice. The, the fiber in food makes the carbohydrate essentially unremarkable. People are always talking about the glycemic index. How high does your blood glucose go? Glycemic excursion. You got people running around with continuous glucose monitors on them, yeah. biohackers. I've done, I've done that. I've done yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. Fascinating. 
And I'm not against it. I'm not against it. I ultimately think that's only about 10% of the equation. Ultimately, the insulin is more important and the triglycerides are more important for the reasons I've just discussed. And we don't have real-time measures of those yet. People are working on them. I'm actually helping some companies with that, but we're not there yet. But nonetheless, continuous glucose monitoring is here now and it is valuable. And I'm not you know, saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's not the, the be all and end all yet. We're not there yet. It's in process. So that fiber, okay, is keeping that carbohydrate, the refined carbohydrate within the food itself from getting into the portal vein and going straight to the liver. So you are protecting your liver and you're preventing that glycemic excursion. And therefore you're keeping your insulin nice and level. But only real food has both soluble and insoluble fiber. Processed food, the fiber has been removed for shelf life, as I talked about. So that's where the action is. And that's why real food works, processed food doesn't. So in terms of sources of fiber, what are some of your favorite foods that are generally great for everyone looking to get insoluble and soluble fiber? It's truly. Anything that doesn't have a label, if it has a label, <laughs> then chances are it's been, the fiber has been removed. That's why it has a label is because the fiber has been removed. So fruits and vegetables, I mean, the stuff in the produce section of the store, absolutely, you know, no problem, but they don't have food labels. I mean, they, there's no nutrition facts label on any of those things. And the, and the reason is because nothing's been done to them. There's only a label if something's been done to it. So any produce. And then we get to the meat and, and the various proteins. The bottom line is that there are things that have been done to the meat that are not so good. Everything from raising them with branch chain amino acid um, you know, because they've been corn fed beef, chicken, and fish, which is not as good because those branch chain amino acids end up increasing liver fat and insulin resistance also. This is the work of Christopher Newgard at Duke. In addition, there are a lot of, uh, they've been loaded with antibiotics because they have to live on the CAFO, the concentrated animal feeding operation, and they will get sick because the manure is not cleared away. They live in their own manure. And so the only way to keep them from dying is by pumping them full of antibiotics. Well, the problem is that we're then consuming those antibiotics and it's changing our intestinal microbiome. So you have to be you know, sort of a little careful about where you get your meat from. Notice I don't have any specific problem with red meat, although processed red meat seems to be a little bit of a problem and increases risk for diabetes, possibly because of the nitrates, possibly because of some of the other preservatives that have been uh, put into processed meat. Something that you know is not listed anywhere is glyphosate. So, I mean, there's GMO, non-GMO. People are very concerned about what glyphosate might do. We don't yet know. We're still working on that, but it looks like glyphosate takes the place of glycine in some of our own proteins in our body and can cause them to be dysfunctional, but that's still work in progress. Bottom line is if you ate real food, you wouldn't have to worry about any of this stuff. It's the processed food that's the problem. And in the book, I go through all the things that processed food have had, has had done to it and why they are a problem. 
food adulterations, food subtractions, food additions, and food addictions because of the addition of sugar. So in terms of meat, seafood, and poultry, assuming we're buying grass-fed, we're buying wild, we're buying organic, we're we're checking all the appropriate boxes in terms of sourcing to make sure none of the crap is in there. Then the next big question for so many people, well, how much is, is enough? How much is too much? Do I need, if I eat too much red meat, Am I going to run into cardiovascular issues? How much seafood do I do I need? Uh, you're a big fan of omega threes, so like, let's talk about meat, seafood, and poultry. And okay, what do we need, if any? Okay, so you don't need any. So there are vegans who are not getting any meat, seafood, or poultry, and I am not against veganism, contrary to popular belief. But you're against fake burgers. I know that. Well. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm against fake burgers yet. There are the, the leg hemoglobin that is used to flavor the uh, fake meat, the uh, the artificial meat, the uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger. It has not been tested. It has not been tested. It's been tested for acute toxicity by the FDA, but it has not been tested for chronic toxicity. And there are other things in that Impossible Burger that are potential problems as well. So. I, am, I have yet to see any data on whether people who switch to impossible burgers from regular meat are any more healthy than they were before. I'm waiting for that, those it, data. It does have a label, though. It does have a label because it's been processed, indeed. So in general, meat that is marbled, which of course is the tender meat, if you will, the the U.S. prime choice, cut it with a butter knife, really flavorful. Okay. Why are they marbled? Why is that meat marbled? If you look at Italian beef or Argentinian beef, and I've got a picture in the book, it's one of the figures in, uh, I think it's figure 18.1. I actually show in a, a picture I took in a Rome restaurant window of Italian steak, Argentinian steak, and U.S. steak. And the Italian and the Argentinian, homogeneous throughout, nice and pink, a little harder to cut, but absolutely delicious. Our steak, marbled. Well, what is that marbling? That's intramyocellular lipid. That's fat in the muscle. That's metabolic syndrome. That animal has metabolic syndrome. That animal went from birth to slaughter in six months. The Argentinian and the Italian cow a steer, I should say, went from birth to slaughter in 18 months, three times faster to get from birth to slaughter because they are putting fat everywhere. They are hyperinsulinemic. One of the reasons is because they're eating corn because that branch chain, those branch chain amino acids are being turned into fat in the liver, which is driving their hyperinsulinemia, which is driving their growth. That animal has metabolic syndrome. We just kill it before it gets sick. But what if, what if it's a grass-fed? So if we're, if we're doing, if it's grass-fed, yeah. Right. So if you look at grass-fed beef, it is way more homogeneous. You don't see that marbling for exactly that reason. So that's one of the issues. So knowing that is very important. And the same thing is true of poultry. In addition, a lot of you know chicken breasts are dipped in salt solutions to increase the salt so that it will swell them so that they can sell it for more. There's a a lot of extra liquid that's been uh, added to it 
very specifically to increase the price. And then you said, and then there's seafood. And the big issue in seafood is what's the omega-3 content? And real seafood is wild caught seafood. Well, so the question is, what do farmed fish eat that wild fish don't? Answer, corn. Farmed fish eat corn. So they are replete with omega-6s, which are pro-inflammatory as opposed to wild fish, which eat algae. So they are replete with omega-3s and omega-3s will save your life. They help neuronal membrane stability. They help neural transmission. They are anti-inflammatory and prevent cardiovascular disease. So omega-3s are the single best thing you can put in your body. But if you're eating farm fish, you're not getting any. So in terms of wild fish, in terms of grass-fed meat, it sounds like no limit for people yeah, or no, is it? Okay. No you got carnivores out there, you know, I'm, I'm for them too. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I, I, on a personal level, I am curious with regards to as people get older, myself included with cardiovascular markers, they can go in the wrong direction for people if they start consuming too much meat. Well, so, so the issue is what's your insulin. So if you're, let's say you're on a ketogenic diet and you're eating like all meat, is that bad? That's the question. It will definitely raise your LDL. I don't argue that. Dietary fat will raise your LDL. Being on a straight meat diet will raise your LDL. The question is, is it the bad LDL? Turns out there's not one LDL, there's two. One's called large buoyant, which is cardiovascularly neutral. And the other one's called small dense, which is cardiovascularly problematic. And the reason is because it's dense, it sinks. So it falls out of the laminar flow through the capillaries and it's small. Meat, high protein, high saturated fat, raises your LDL, but it's the large buoyant, not the small dense. And it turns out it's not the saturated fat that's the problem. It's the saturated fatty acids that are the problem. So saturated fat are triglycerides. They're triacylglycerols. They're packaged. They're palmitate and stearate and what have you. They are packaged into an ester with a glycerol molecule. The carboxylic acid, the COOH, which is the reactive part of the fatty acid, it's esterified. It's not available. Saturated fatty acids, where that carboxylic acid is available, those are the bad guys. So non-esterified fatty acids, NIFAs or free fatty acids, that's where the problem is. The question is, is that what you're eating? No, that's not what you're eating. You're eating the globules. You're eating the tri triglycerides. You're not eating the free fatty acids. So where are the free fatty acids? Well, they're coming from lipolysis of peripheral adipose tissue due to insulin resistance. And they're coming in the liver when the liver turns sugar into fat, because that's the, 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 they have to make free fatty acids first before they can be esterified. So the bottom line is, in both cases, it's due to insulin resistance and due to carbohydrate and particularly sugar. So it's not the fat in the meat that's the problem. It's the insulin that you, it's the French fries that you eat along with the steak that's the problem. It's it definitely interesting. And you mentioned keto, and I think of the keto community and low-carb community and the gluten-free community, and there are so many great 
options for people out there. And one thing that stood out to me in the book was cassava flour, because I see it all the time. And you say, no good. Cassava flour, no good. So can we, I think there are lots of people listening right now are going to say, whoa. So let's talk about that. Well, cassava flour is just refined carbohydrate like any other refined carbohydrate. It can be potato flour. It can be wheat flour. It's, yeah, cassava flour, it doesn't have gluten. Okay, that's fine. So gluten-free people are on to cassava flour. I understand that. But ultimately, cassava has very little fiber in it. And that's one of the reasons why cassava flour is easily harvested. Very little fiber. The point is that if you overwhelm yourself with refined carbohydrate without fiber, you are going to generate a glycemic uh, excursion. You're going to basically overpower your liver's capacity. You're going to generate an insulin response and you're going to generate weight gain and insulin resistance in the process. You're going to contribute to chronic metabolic disease. And it's not specific to cassava flour. It's you know true for any of our refined carbohydrates. So for, for any of those flours or alternative flours, are there some that are better than our, others? Is it almond flour? Is it whole wheat? But you know, if you're going to have a, a wrap, if you're going to have a sandwich, if you're going to ha- have some sort of flour, if you will, are some choices better than others? Yeah, well, the ones that are lower in carbohydrate. So, for instance, almond flour has a lot more fat in it and also has a little bit of fiber because the almonds have quite a bit of fiber in them. So that's probably, and they're also it's still gluten-free. So that's still probably a better choice in most cases. Okay, the ones that are lowest in fiber are going to be your worst choices. And cassava is definitely in that category. Got it. So something else you talk about in the book, I love this quote. You say that in in chronic disease, there are many, they are not druggable. They are in fact foodable. So not druggable, foodable. So can we unpack that? Sure. It's a, this is a complicated uh, you know, concept, but let me try to do that. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia. These are not diseases. These are manifestations of diseases. The real disease is what's going on inside the cell, the subcellular pathologies. Now, we don't have ICD-11 codes for those. We don't have names for those. We do have names. The the scientists know them, but we don't teach them to the doctors, so the patients don't know them. So I'm going to name the eight chronic subcellular pathologies that are going on underneath all of these various chronic diseases that we are dealing with today. And here they are in order. Glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, membrane instability, inflammation, methylation, and autophagy. These are the eight subcellular processes that belie all of the chronic metabolic diseases we currently know about. When you look at the molecular mechanisms of each of these pathologies, which I have, they're not druggable. What is druggable are the symptoms. So yes, you can lower LDL, but LDL is not the problem. LDL is a manifestation of the problem. Yes, you can lower blood glucose, but glucose is not the problem. It's a manifestation of the insulin resistance and the mitochondrial dysfunction. Yes, you can lower the blood pressure, 
with antihypertensives, but the blood pressure is a manifestation of the altered enos or the, the endothelial dysfunction that's going on inside the cells, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So treating a symptom of a disease does not treat the disease. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Sure, it'll take away the headache. Ain't going to do a damn thing for the brain tumor. You're still going to die. And that's what we're seeing. So we're not seeing any improvement in longevity or any improvement in health span because of the use of all of these very expensive medicines. In fact, lifespans going down in America four years in a row, despite the fact that we have all of these drugs to treat them. And the reason is because we're not treating the disease, we're treating the symptom or the manifestation of the disease. But what does treat it? Real food. And when you look at the pathways, you can see where the real food actually works. So each of these eight pathologies that I just mentioned, they're not druggable, but they are foodable. So very briefly, this one's specific to me. So methylation. So our listeners are numb to this number, so I'll share it again. But I had, I have the MTHFR gene and COMT, and I have the double C677T. So I discovered a couple of years ago, my homocysteine was 63. Oh my. Yeah. Everyone has the same reaction. Now it's between 12 and 15. Through, oh, through, through through seven. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm also a little bit of a genetic freak. And, and, and the way I look at all the, the data and the numbers, it's like, hey, sometimes... It is what it is. Everything else looks good. I'm trying. So with that said, I saw that decrease through, through the cocktail of B vitamins, betaine. I work with Lipman, Frank Lipman on it. I'm curious with methylation specific, because I'm also convinced that more people have methylation issues and don't know about it. Correct. With methylation specific, can you just talk a little bit about how food can help there? So methyl groups are not supposed to be on your DNA. Okay, when they are, they can stop transcription or and translation. So the goal is to keep your DNA clean, as it were. Now, there are other things hanging off DNA too. It's not just uh, methyl groups. I mean, it can be sumoal groups, et cetera. There, there's a lot of different um, epigenetic, they're called epigenetic marks uh, on different genes throughout the entire genome. But the goal is to try to keep those to a minimum. And the problem is that there are certain disease states and certain genes variants that like you have of genes that are supposed to protect your DNA that aren't working so great. And the famous one, the one that you just described is called MTHFR or methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. So when your MTHFR is not working right, you're going to methylate a lot of genes. And that's not necessarily good because it means you're going to have various uh, cellular dysfunctions. One of the things that builds up in that case is this intermediate amino acid called homocysteine. Now, homocysteine should go to cystothionine and go into the amino acid metabolism pathway and be gotten rid of. But when you have an MTHFR mutation or a deficiency or something where it's not working right, you're going to end up having a buildup in homocysteine, which has been shown to contribute to cardiovascular disease. Can you force it? And the answer is apparently, to some extent, depending on how bad the gene defect is, 
to some extent you can. And so folate is the, you know, driver, but other B vitamins help as well. And other B vitamins are important in trying to prevent methylation. So a lot of people, that's one of the reasons why B complexes are, you know, out there. And obviously B12 is a big issue as well. And that's very important in terms of epigenetics as well. And lots of people now have B12 deficiency because they're on proton pump inhibitors for their heartburn and they're not absorbing the B12. And so there are a whole bunch of different things in terms of how micronutrients ultimately impact on uh, amino acid metabolism and on your DNA that are important in trying to keep you healthy. So in closing, I'll timestamp this. It's April 8th. The world's changing pretty fast, but it's April 8th we're talking. What, what science or research are you following you think is interesting that has potential and we may be talking about a year or so from now? Where do you think the conversation's going? Well, I just read an article just this morning that I am very excited about. So we all know that mitochondria are in the crosshairs. Mitochondria, all of these diseases, all these chronic metabolic diseases are mitochondrial diseases. They're all defects in energy utilization. And the goal is to make your mitochondria run cleanly and efficiently and get rid of the old ones because the old ones make oxidative stress. So having the best mitochondria you can have is the goal. That's one of the reasons why people exercise is because exercise induces PGC1-alpha. PGC1-alpha is the precursor to good mitochondrial biogenesis, activation of muscle, all good. Turns out there is a protein in cells and it is called Parkin1, P-A-R-K-I-N. And turns out Parkin1 is the first cellular signal that your mitochondria are under stress and they go to try to stabilize the mitochondria. And now Parkinson has been associated with Parkinson's disease and diabetes and a few other chronic diseases. Basically, again, demonstrating to us that it's the mitochondria that matter. These are all mitochondrial diseases and we are basically killing our mitochondria. But do you know what kills our mitochondria fastest, worst, and is so ubiquitous that your grandmother is killing your mitochondria? sugar. Because fructose decreases mitochondrial beta oxidation. So that's where we need to, that's what we need to fix. We need to get our mitochondria up and running. Fascinating. Well, Rob, thank you so much. I love the book, Metabolical. Everyone pick it up. Metabolical, the lore and the lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine. And I meant that modern medicine part. No holds barred here. Okay. I name names. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that this book was a kiss and tell, but since it's really about diabetes, it's more like a piss and tell. <laughs>